Uh, good morning and welcome to our second panel of the day. I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, and will be serving as a moderator for this morning's panel. Uh, the other panels throughout the day really focus on a variety of aspects of monetary policy. This panel, however, goes beyond the aggregates and focuses on the question of the allocation of credit, an area where, despite its claims otherwise, the Federal Reserve has increasingly inserted itself. Many of the Fed's actions during the financial crisis, in my opinion, can only be described as fiscal policy. For instance, the purchase of a trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities very much mirrors the original stated purpose of the TARP, which was to purchase $700 billion in troubled assets' primary mortgages. Yet we are to believe that a similar action by the Fed does not constitute fiscal policy, while the same action by Congress would. Uh, and does, of course, the purchase of mortgage-backed securities as opposed to commercial paper or bankers' acceptances not constitute the favorite of one sector of the economy over another? Of course, one of the primary flaws of credit allocation by government planners is that such will ensure that credit does not necessarily flow to the most productive sectors of society, but the most politically favored. The process of credit allocation is not limited to sectors of the real economy, but also occurs within the financial system. Choosing to assist investment banks, for instance, could potentially come at the expense of drawing reserves away from small and mid-sized commercial banks, which itself could further distort the ultimate allocation of credit within our economy. The Fed's numerous excursions into fiscal policy in the wake of the crisis are harmful enough, but sadly these adventures into credit allocation were also contributors to the crisis. Extended periods of artificially low interest rates channeled excessive credit into our property markets, resulting in a boom and bust from which we are still struggling to recover. These are just a number, of, a few of the examples that we're going to touch upon in the panel today, uh, and we are very fortunate to have an incredibly distinguished panel today. Since their buyers are in their packet, I'm only going to mention what their current positions are, but I certainly encourage you to take a look at their previous uh, long experiences. Our first, our first speaker will be Jeffrey Lacker, who currently serves as the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Our next speaker will be Alan Meltzer, who is professor of political economy at Carnegie Mellon University and distinguished visiting scholar at the Hoover Institute. Alan also serves as a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where I believe he was only moments ago speaking on another panel, so we're very lucky that he was able to make it over here for this one. Uh, following Alan will be George Selgin, who is a professor at economics at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. Perhaps most importantly, or in my opinion most impressively, George is also a fellow with the Cato Institute. Our final speaker will be Roger Garrison, who is professor of economics at Auburn University. Again, I want to welcome all of our panelists, and I'm going to turn the podium over to Jeff. Thank you, Mark. The financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 was a watershed event for the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world. The extraordinary actions they took have been described alternatively as a natural extension of monetary policy to extreme circumstances or as a problematic exercise in credit allocation. I've expressed my view elsewhere that much of the Fed's response to the crisis falls in the latter category rather than the former. Rather than re-argue the case, which I suspect would resemble preaching to the choir here, I want to take this opportunity to reflect on some of the institutional reasons behind the prevailing propensity of many modern central banks to intervene in credit markets. As always, these remarks reflect uh, my own views and the views expressed are not necessarily those of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. There's widespread agreement among economists that a vigorous monetary response can be necessary at times 
to prevent a contraction from becoming a deflationary spiral. Financial market turmoil often sparks a flight to monetary assets. In the 19th and 20th century, this took the form often of shifts out of deposits and into banknotes and specie. Under a fractional reserve banking system, this necessitates a deflationary contraction in overall money supply unless offset through clearinghouse or central bank expansion of the supply of notes. In modern financial panics, banks often seek to hoard reserve balances, which again would be contractionary absent an accommodating increase in the central bank reserve supply. In both cases, the need is for an increase in outstanding central bank monetary liabilities, and I emphasize liabilities. The Fed's response during the financial crisis was not purely monetary, however. In the first phase, from the fall of 2007 through the summer of 2008, its credit actions were sterilized. That is to say, lending through the term auction facility uh, beginning in January of 2008, um, and lending in support of the merger of Bear Stearns and J.P. Morgan Chase that spring were offset by sales of U.S. Treasury securities from the Fed's portfolio, leaving the monetary base unchanged. Note that such sterilized actions are the equivalent of issuing a new U.S. Treasury debt to the public and using the proceeds uh, to fund uh, the lending, which um, I think quite clearly constitutes fiscal policy. It wasn't until September of 2008 that the supply of excess reserves began to increase appreciably. This expansion was accomplished through the acquisition of an expanding set of private assets by the Federal Reserve, loans to banks and other financial institutions, and later mortgage-backed securities and debt issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. While some observers described this phase of the Fed's response as a standard monetary expansion in the face of a deflationary threat, the Fed's own characterization often emphasized instead the intent to provide direct assistance to dysfunctional segments of the credit markets. Clearly, an equivalent expansion of reserve supply could have been achieved via purchases of U.S. Treasury securities, that is to say, without conducting credit allocation. Like the Fed, the ECB and many other central banks have also pursued credit allocation in response to the crisis. The impulse to reallocate credit certainly reflects uh, an earnest desire to fix perceived credit market problems that seem to be within the central bank's power to fix. My sense is that the Federal Reserve's credit policy was motivated by a sincere belief that central banks have a civic duty to alleviate significant ex post deficiencies in credit markets. But credit allocation can redirect resources from taxpayers to financial market investors, and over time can expand moral hazard and distort the allocation of capital. This implies a difficult and contentious cost-benefit calculation. But no matter how the risk, how the net benefits are assessed, no matter how you judge that trade-off, central bank intervention in credit markets will have distributional consequences. Central bank credit allocation is therefore bound to be controversial. Indeed, the actions taken by the Fed over the last few years have generated a level of invective that has not been seen in a very long time. Critics have sought to exploit the resentment of credit market re rescues for partisan political advantage. While it's easy to deplore politically motivated attempts to influence Fed policy, 
We need to recognize the extent to which some measure of antagonism is an understandable consequence of the Fed's own credit allocation and credit policy initiative. The inevitable controversy surrounding central bank interventions in credit markets is one reason that many observers have long advocated keeping central banks out of the business of credit allocation. Central bank lending undermines the integrity of the fiscal appropriations process. And while U.S. fiscal policymaking may not inspire much admiration these days, it is subject to the checks and balances provided for by our Constitution. Contentious disputes about which credit market segments receive support and which do not can entangle the central bank in political conflicts that threaten the independence of monetary policymaking. The independence that, monetary, that modern central banks have to control the monetary policy interest rate emerged at, right after World War II, but it emerged in stages. The Treasury Fed of Cord of 1951 freed the Federal Reserve from uh, the wartime obligation to artificially depress the Treasury's borrowing costs. The collapse of the gold standard, we've heard about that earlier this morning, in the early 70s, and the attendant bouts of inflation led the Fed in 1979 to assert responsibility for low inflation as the primary objective of monetary policy. The independent commitment of central banks to low inflation provides that nominal anchor uh, that substitutes for the anchor formerly provided by the gold standard. The substantial measure of independence central banks have been given was a key element in their relative success at sustaining low inflation over the last few decades. And while there are a range of plausible views now about inflation risks going forward, I think it's clearly the case that inflation performance over the last two decades, say, was far superior to that of the 70s and early 80s. In fact, many countries have adopted frameworks that hold their central banks accountable for a, a price stability goal, while allowing them to set their interest rate policy instrument independently in pursuit of their goals. This instrument independence within an accountability framework has been critical to insulating monetary policymaking from election-related political pressures that can detract from longer-term objectives. The cornerstone of central bank independence is the ability to control the amount of monetary liabilities it supplies to the public. But as a byproduct, many central banks retain the ability to independently control the composition of their assets as well. For many modern central banks, standard policy in normal times is to restrict asset holdings to their own country's government, their own country's government debt. Some hold gold as well, a vestige of the gold standard. Others hold foreign exchange reserves. In addition, many make short-term loans to banks, either to meet temporary liquidity needs from time to time or as part of clearing and settlement operations, both vestiges of the origin of central banks as essentially nationalized clearinghouses. The ability of a central bank to intervene in credit markets using the asset side of its balance sheet creates an inevitable tension then. The desire of executive and legislative branches to provide governmental assistance to particular credit market participants can rise dramatically in times of financial market stress. At such times, the power of a central bank to do fiscal policy, in essence, essentially outside the safeguards of the constitutional process for appropriations, makes it an inviting target for other government officials. 
Central bank lending is often the path of least resistance in a financial crisis. The resulting political entanglements, though, as we have seen, create risks for the independent operation of monetary policy. At the heart of this tension is a classic time consistency problem. Central bank rescues serve the short-term goal of protecting investors from the pain of unanticipated credit market losses, but they dilute market discipline and distort future risk-taking incentives. Over time, small one-off interventions set precedents that encourage greater risk-taking and thus increase the odds of future financial distress. Policymakers then feel boxed in and obligated to intervene in ever larger ways, perpetuating a vicious cycle of government safety net expansion. The conundrum facing central banks then is that the balance sheet independence that proved crucial in the fight to tame inflation is itself a handicap in the pursuit of financial market stability. The latitude the typical central bank has to intervene in credit markets weakens their ability to discourage expectations of future rescues and by doing so enhance market discipline. Solving this conundrum and containing the impulse to intervene requires one of two approaches. A central bank could seek to build and maintain a reputation for not intervening in much the way the Fed and other central banks established credibility for a commitment to low inflation in the 1980s, even in the absence of a legislative constraint to do so. Alternatively, explicit legislative measures could constrain central, banker, central bank lending. The Dodd-Frank Act took steps in this direction by banning Federal Reserve loans to individual non-bank entities. But reserve banks retain the power to lend to individual depository institutions and to intervene in particular credit market segments in, quote, unusual and exigent circumstances, unquote, through credit programs with, quote, broad-based eligibility, unquote. In addition, the Fed can channel credit by purchasing the obligations of government-sponsored enterprises, uh, such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Constraining central bank lending powers would appear to conflict with the popular perception that serving as a lender of last resort is intrinsic to central banking. But even here, I think our historical doctrines and practices should not escape reconsideration. The notion of a central bank as a lender of last resort derives from an era of commodity money standard, when central bank lending in a crisis was the most effective way to expand currency supply to meet a sudden increase in demand. Indeed, the preamble to the Federal Reserve Act says its purpose is, quote, to furnish an elastic currency, unquote, not to furnish an elastic supply of credit. The Fed could easily manage the supply of monetary assets through purchases and sales of U.S. Treasury securities alone. While it might sound extreme, I believe that a regime in which the Federal Reserve is restricted to hold only U.S. Treasury securities purchased on the open market is worthy of consideration. It might seem easy to criticize such a regime by reference to what it would have prevented the Fed from doing in the recent crisis. But that's the wrong frame of reference, I would argue. It's an ex post rather than an ex ante perspective. Such a regime, if credible, would over time force changes in market practices, which would alter the likelihood and magnitude of crises and the behavior of private market arrangements during a crisis. 
It would strengthen market discipline and incent institutions to operate with more capital and less short-term debt fund funding. Changes we're now trying to achieve, but through regulatory means alone. The relative costs and benefits of such a regime may be difficult to map out conclusively, but I believe this trade-off is well worth studying. So in closing, let me observe that 10 years ago, my former colleagues Al Broadus and Marvin Goodfriend argued that the design of central bank asset policy is, quote, part of the unfinished business of building a modern independent Federal Reserve, unquote. The 1951 Treasury Fed Accord, as I said, gave the Federal Reserve independent control of its liabilities, a necessary ingredient in monetary policy independence, but the accompanying power to use the Fed's asset portfolio to intervene in credit markets is a threat to that independence and a threat to financial stability. Sorting out the conundrum of central bank asset policy should be high on the agenda for all those interested in improving the practice of central banking today. Thank you very much. I agree with Jeff. <laughs> Over response to short-term events and neglect of longer-term consequences of the actions of its actions is one of the main errors that the Federal Reserve makes repeatedly. The current recession offers many examples of actions that some characterize as bold and innovative. I regard many of these actions, as Jeff does, as inappropriate for an allegedly independent central bank because they involve credit allocation, fill the Fed's portfolio with an unprecedented volume of long-term assets, evade or neglect the dual mandate, distort the credit markets, and in initiate other actions that are not the responsibility of a central bank. Purchasing more than $1 trillion of long-term mortgages, that's a trillion with a TR. That's credit allocation. How can the mortgage-related securities be sold later when inflation rises while the housing market remains troubled. The Fed has no plan. Its focus is on the short term. Selling Treasury securities to finance mortgages or other purchases is a fiscal operation. Money doesn't change, and the purchase reduces the interest payment made to the Treasury. We just heard about that. Bailing out Bear Stearns and accepting $30 billion of low-quality assets in March 2008 is high on the list of mistaken actions in this recession. That reminded financial markets that too big to fail not only remained part of operating policy, but that the policy now included non-banks and medium-sized financial firms. The bailout policy kept in place and ever extended support for banks and others that earned high returns on risky assets and shifted many of the losses to taxpayers, you and me. Without warning, the Fed and the Treasury changed too big to fail policy in October, allowing Lehman Brothers to fail. That policy didn't continue. Days later, the Fed bailed out American International Group by investing $180 billion of the public's money in the failing company. These shifts in policy greatly increased uncertainty about what would happen next. Financial firms 
and others responded by greatly increasing the demand for cash. The Fed responded appropriately in this case by acting as lender of last resort to the financial markets at home and abroad by increasing the supply of cash assets. What occurred next is a model of what a well-run central bank should not do. The Fed explained that the increase in cash assets was almost entirely short-term assets. These would decline over time and would be withdrawn. That didn't happen. The Fed replaced the short-term assets with long-term assets and undertook credit allocation to stimulate the housing market by buying mortgage-related securities. It explained that these holdings would decline over time as borrowers paid interest in some principal. Again, that didn't happen. So much for credibility. The Fed purchased long-dated securities, treasury securities, to prevent its balance sheet from shrinking. Excessive concern about the near-term market makes the Fed give too much attention to the daily yammering that is called financial market commentary. Much of the commentary is self-serving. In the summer of 2010, the commentators warned repeatedly that deflation and a recession were likely. The Fed responded by adopting QE2, a bond purchase program. Market speculators bought long-term bonds ahead of the program and profited. If the Fed had waited a few more months, it would have found that forecasts of deflation and renewed recession were wrong. Not the first time that the Fed's forecasts were wrong. Did the Fed's response prevent the predicted outcomes? Unlikely, because after the Fed announced purchases of $600 billion of long-term Treasury debt, their massive excess reserves, a trillion dollars at the time, rose by an additional $500 billion. These are not pennies we're talking about. The dollar fell against most currencies. Several countries purchased dollars to slow the exchange rate appreciation of their currency, absorbing most of the remaining $100 billion. Exchange rate depreciation raised import prices. The Fed pays little attention to the exchange rate except when there is a crisis. Some soon after the end of QE2, the, Treasury the Fed announced that it would keep the federal funds rate near zero for the next two years, until 2013. The main effect of this action is to keep expected future interest rates from rising. The Fed can then point to expected future interest rates as evidence that the markets believe inflation will not occur. The exchange rate and prices send a very different message. The dollar depreciated 15% in the last year against weak currencies like the euro and the yen. The market commentators pay little attention to the dollar because they know that the Fed ignores the exchange rate. The most recent Fed action is the attempt to twist the yield curve by buying long-term debt and selling short-term. Reserves and money do not change in this operation. This is not a monetary action. The Fed is again engaging in debt management or credit market policy that is the province of the Treasury, if it's anyone's. The Fed responded again <coughs> to the financial market soothsayers who warned of another recession. We know that was wildly wrong. The preliminary estimates of third quarter growth 
it's 2.5%, double the second quarter rate, hardly a recession. Of course, in advance of the Fed's announcement, the market against lowered long-term bond yields to so some nimble speculators were able to gain. How does that help the economy or the unemployed? It's a mistake that the current Fed keeps making because it has short-term myopia. The last attempt to trip the, twist the yield curve was in the, late, in the early 1960s. Both Federal Reserve and outside researchers concluded that the policy failed. A main reason is that the Treasury market is a large active market. Traders sell what the Treasury buys and buy what the Treasury sells, thereby reversing the change in yields that the Fed wants to achieve. The speculators profited from the Fed's announcement but lost if they held Treasury bonds very long. Soon bond yields were higher than before the announcement. Recent Fed actions have much in common. They reward the day traders in the bond market and have little, if any, effect on the unemployment and output. Also, they show the very short-term focus that dominates Federal Reserve actions. The United States has major long-term problems. Housing is one. The budget and current account balances are others. No one in his right mind thinks that those policies are going to be solved in the next three months. Dollar devaluation contributes to export growth, but it raises imports because the market adjusts oil and other import prices for dollar depreciation. <coughs> Chairman Bernanke assures us repeatedly that the oil price increase is temporary. I wonder what that's based on. It doesn't look temporary to me. The cost of improving, of importing oil and other commodities rises, increasing the value of imports and hindering necessary reductions in the current account balance. I am often asked, when do I think the inflation rate will rise? It will show signs of rising when housing prices stop falling and the, owner, the, uh, the value of owner-occupied houses keep, stops driving down the current measures of the price level. The current Fed and many others ignore money growth. The reason always given is that monetary vol velocity is unstable. That claim is true only because the Fed focuses on the near term and ignores the longer term consequences of its actions. I agree that quarterly changes in monetary velocity are often unpredictable. The same is not true of annual movements, as shown by numerous studies of demand for money based on annual data. If you get out a copy of my paper for this session, you'll find this chart. The chart is taken from my monetary history. <clears throat> it shows a chart relating base velocity to a long-term interest rate for the years 1919 to 1997. That chart includes most data for most of Fed history, years of war, depression, inflation, deflation, <coughs> years on the gold sta exchange standard, pegged interest rates, and disinflation. As usual in my work, I use the long-term interest rate because it is a better measure of expected inflation than the short-term rate. The chart shows remarkable stability. If you look at the chart, you'll see that there are some points in the middle of the chart with labels for years. When interest rates returned in the 1960s to the levels that they reached in the 1920s, 
Base velocity returned to the mid-1920s levels also. That's stability. Further, the long right tail shows the rise in interest rates and base velocity during the inflation, and the points come down along the same path during the disinflation. That's stability. <clears throat> the Fed's excessive attention to monthly and quarterly events leads them to ignore the information on money growth and velocity and to dismiss it entirely. That's a mistake, an error contribu that contributed to the inflation of the 1970s and is repeated now. It reflects the undue concentration on the near term and neglect of the consequences of their own actions. Surely we and they know that there are long lags between policy action and its effects. What is the, why does the Fed ignore money growth and longer-term consequences of its action? Their near-term forecasts have large errors, about as large as private forecast errors. <coughs> Research has shown that policy actions are not absorbed within a quarter. Monetary lags are much longer. It is true that staff models give the members of FOMC information about the medium and longer-term future, but the members don't agree on the models and often disagree with the forecast. Several presidents have independent forecasts of their own. No effort is made to reconcile the differences, and none has ever been made. In nearly 100 years, the Fed has not agreed on a model of the economy. It doesn't attempt to reach consensus about how the economy works, and it simply ignores the issue. Why does the Fed persist in this short-sighted short actions? I believe that actual or perceived political pressure is the main reason. From its very beginning, the board has been the conduit for political influence. That's why it was there. That's why President Wilson's compromise, which created the board in the so-called semi-independent banks, was struck. Over time, Congress has increased the relative position of the board and reduced the influence of the reserve banks <coughs> and their directors. The 1935 Act shifted the balance decisively. Additional shifts came at other times, including the recent financial crisis, when the board and the New York Fed acted on bailouts and lending without discussion by either members of the FOMC, and Congress further limited the role of bank directors. And currently, Congressman Barney Frank has reopened a periodically recurring discussion of the role of the presidents. To increase political influence, especially his, he proposes to eliminate the president's influence from decisions. Uh, Congress gave the board a dual mandate. Congressman Frank opposes the presidents who dissent because they remind FOMC members that one part of the dual mandate, future inflation, is, in my opinion, highly likely. The dual mandate calls on the Fed to respond to unemployment and inflation. In its long history, it has rarely achieved both goals simultaneously and often didn't achieve either. The successful periods are 1923 to 28, a few years in the 1950s and 1960s, and 1985 to 2003. The last is by far the longest period of stable growth and low inflation. The few recessions in these years were short and mild. During this period, the Fed appears to have approximately followed John Taylor's rule. That rule calls for response to both elements of a dual mandate. 
Most often, the Fed concentrates on only one of the elements of the dual mandate. <clears throat> During the inflationary 1970s, most attention, virtually all, was on unemployment. Brief attempts to reduce inflation ended with the unemployment rate rose above 6 or 7 percent. During the early Volcker years, 1979 to 1982, policy concentrated on reducing inflation. Current policy again works almost entirely to reduce unemployment. To put it bluntly, pursuing one part of the dual mandate, then switching to the other part and back again is inefficient, highly inefficient. The result in the 1970s was the Fed did not achieve either of its mandated goals. Both inflation and the unemployment rate rose during the decade. The Fed continued to operate on the belief that there was a trade-off between the two goals. It claimed that higher inflation reduced unemployment. The instantaneous or short-term effect may be consistent with their Phillips curve model. As noted, the actual changes over time were that inflation and unemployment rose together. Shortly after Paul Volcker began the disinflation policies in 1979, he went on a Sunday talk show. The Phillips curve was widely accepted, so he was asked what he would do when unemployment increased. His reply <laughs> denied the relevance of the Phillips curve for policy. Volcker responded by pointing out that the question of why they would have to trade off, he would have to trade off one goal for the other, reducing inflation. Instead, he said that unemployment and inflation rose together. Reducing inflation would bring down the unemployment rate. Volcker repeated that message to the Fed staff many times. And <coughs> he didn't use the foreca their forecasts of inflation and unemployment because he told them that they weren't very good. We now know that he was right. Alan Greenspan also did not find the staff Phillips curve forecast useful for policy decision, and he told the staff more than once. The Bernanke Fed continues to use the Phillips curve to forecast inflation, despite its own history during the Volcker and Greenspan years and the large amount of econometric evidence. Once again, the current Fed gives excessive attention to the near term over which they have little influence. It ignores the medium and longer term consequences of its action. These are more subject to the influence of, <coughs> given the low level of interest rates and the massive amount of idle excess reserves, I find the political pressure as the likely explanation of recent addition to excess reserves and attempts to further lower long-term interest rates. The Fed can tell Congress that they are, quote, doing something, end quote. One can only hope that at some point the Fed will remember both that there is another half of its dual mandate and that excess demand for money is not why current unemployment remains around 9%. Interest rates and excess reserves both show that we do not have restrictive monetary policy. Financial failures are another perennial Fed problem. In its nearly 100-year history, the Fed has never announced its policy as lender of last resort. Resort. From the 1970s on, it acted on the belief that some banks were too big to fail. Although the FOMC discussed their last resort policy at times, the Fed never committed itself to a policy rule about assistance, and its actions are not always consistent. Drexel Burnham was permitted to fail, and later Lehman, but Bear Stearns was sold to J.P. Morgan Chase after the Fed bought 
30 billion of the most risky assets. <clears throat> it has sustained a large loss of taxpayers' money that it hopes to recover from the Treasury. The Dodd-Frank law gives responsibility for the signing on bailouts to a committee chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. I regard this as foolish. Once the crisis of failures start, the committee will always choose to do the bailout rather than risk contagion. Deciding one at a time under pressure is not a substitute for a clear policy statement announced in advance and implemented without hesitation. The familiar Badgett rule is an example that worked well in the past. Let me talk about what should be done. Economists and central bankers have discussed monetary rules for decades. A common response of those who oppose a rule or rule-like behavior is that a central banker's judgment is better than any rule. The evidence we have disposes of that claim. The longest period of low inflation and relatively stable growth that the Fed has achieved was the 1985-2003 period when it followed a Taylor rule. Discretionary judgments, on the other hand, brought a few notable failures. The Great Depression, the Great Inflation, numerous inflations and recessions. The Fed contributed to the current crisis by keeping interest rates too low for too long. No rule can be correct all the time. Rule-like behavior calls on the Fed to announce a rule like the Taylor Rule. If it believes there is reason to depart from the rule, it should announce its decision clearly. If its decision turns out wrong, it should offer an explanation and offer to resign. The President can accept the explanation or the resignation. That closes the current very large gap between Federal Reserve authority and political responsibility. Rule-like behavior forces the Fed to look ahead to the time when today's policy actions become future reality. That helps to bring more stability, but more change is needed. Since the Bretton Woods system ended, the dollar has depreciated substantially, as much as 75% against the Swiss franc, the yen, and some other currencies. The United States should agree on a common inflation target, zero to two percent, and it should agree with the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan to adopt a similar inflation target. Any country that pegged its currency to one of the three would have a fixed exchange rate and low inflation. The three major currencies would gain exchange rate stability with those who peg. All decisions would be voluntary. No meetings would be needed. Markets would monitor the commitment to low inflation. The dollar, the euro, and the yen would continue to float so as to adjust real exchange rates to productivity and other real events. <coughs> Eventually, the Chinese renminbi might join the agreement if China allows its currency to float and abandons its exchange controls. This arrangement is not perfect. It would provide low inflation and greater exchange rate stability. It would offer a public good to all countries that wished to take advantage, and it would depend on markets to enforce discipline. One additional proposal is a rule, perhaps Badgett's rule, as a lender of last resort rule combined with a capital requirement that enforces prudence by making stockholders and managers take the losses when credit market failures and mistakes occur. Rational decision makers know that they must always answer 
three questions when choosing a strategy. Where are we? Where do we want to get? How do we get there most efficiently from where we are? In my study of Federal Reserve history, it is rare to find the Fed making rational plans. The present is no exception. We can improve end outcomes by an ending unlimited discretion and insisting on great discipline and accountability for Federal Reserve actions. Thank you. Hello, thank you all for giving this opportunity to me uh, to uh, talk about uh, how we can reform our present system. Uh, Jeff Lacker, like all employees of the Fed, had to give a disclaimer distinguishing his personal views from views of the Federal Reserve System. Though I have never been an employee of the Fed, much less a, a member of the FOMC, I uh, must also make a disclaimer by telling you that the views I'll express today should not be interpreted as implying that I do not favor doing away entirely with the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> I, I am, I am never, nevertheless offering what are, for me at least, very conservative proposals for reforming that system. The conservative, I hasten to say, in the sense of being, uh, uh, of not involving radical changes to the Fed's constitution. My inspiration like some of Alan's remarks, comes from Walter Badgett. Badgett, responding largely to the English Panic of 1866, made his famous recommendation that the Bank of England should lend freely at high rates on good collateral. The recommendation is famous. What isn't so famous, what ought to be more famous, is the fact that Badgett explicitly regarded this advice as a second best solution to the problem of crises in England. Badgett's first best solution was the abandonment of central banking in favor of free banking along the lines of the Scottish system. I'm going to be offering suggestions in the same spirit as Badgett's, but more fitting, I believe, for a 21st century money market uh, and inspired in this case, of course, by our recent financial crisis. Also, the recommendations I have in mind aren't merely recommendations concerning how central banks and the Fed in particular should conduct their operations. They are recommendations concerning how the Fed's operating framework should be changed. The ultimate goal of these recommendations is to turn our present discretionary Fed into a rule-bound Fed. Now, I have to say a few things in uh, preparing to put forward my recommendations about the Fed's ordinary operating framework. This framework is based largely on open market operations, that is, the Fed's selling and buying, mainly buying, of securities in the open or secondary market. Now, the particular setup the Fed relies on for its open market operations consists of two important components. The first is the so-called primary dealer system. This system consists of a set of specially privileged banks, 
There were 20 on the eve of the financial crisis. There are 22, oh no, sorry, 21 now. And uh, uh, it deals in its open market operations usually only with these special institutions. That's one feature of its operating framework that I intend to criticize. The second feature is the Fed's so-called treasuries-only policy, which Jeff Lacker referred to very briefly. That is, its policy of limiting its open market purchases to purchases of U.S. Treasury securities only. Now, it is by open market purchases and occasional sales of, of Treasury securities that the Fed engages in ordinary monetary policy, that is, policy aimed at regulating the supply of, me of money in the economy in normal times and achieving the Fed's policy targets, including its intermediate interest rate targets. The Fed also operates a discount window facility, and this facility is specifically for last resort lending purposes. And here it engages through, these, uh, through the discount window loans in direct lending to particular individual financial institutions on the basis of collateral specified uh, in its discount window policy, and that collateral can include lots of things other than uh, uh, Treasury securities. Now, some people have argued that in our modern financial system, there's no reason to have a discount window. In fact, it was uh, quite a few of these arguments being made prior to the recent crisis, and the rationale behind them was fairly straightforward. In our modern financial system, we have a well-developed a private market for allocating credit. We have the federal funds market where banks lend reserves to each other overnight, and we have other wholesale lending markets. So in principle, if the Fed gets the total amount of liquid funds right through its open market operations, we can rely on the private marketplace to allocate the funds where they are most needed. Therefore, there should never be any need for a discount window facility because banks that are sound but in need of liquidity should be able to acquire it in the open market using good collateral in, con in conformity with Badgett's principles, uh, provided that the Fed make, sees to it that the aggregate amount of liquidity in the economy is sufficient. Well, of course, the recent crisis has cast a lot of doubt on this view. Many, many people questioned it before, but it is now more widely believed that, of course, in a time of crisis, you can't rely on secondary markets and private institutions to allocate al uh, aggregate liquidity effectively, that there must be some direct lending by the Federal Reserve. I propose to argue that this is an incorrect conclusion to draw from recent experience. The fault doesn't lie with the inadequacy of open market operations as such. The problem is the Fed's particular framework for implementing such operations. The problem is the primary dealer system on one hand and the Fed's treasury only, treasury's only policies on the other. These are uh, the reasons why open market operations have not or were not adequate, have not been or were not perceived to be adequate by themselves during the recent crisis, but modifying this, these elements of the Fed's operating framework should suffice to allow us to, to allow the Fed to manage money with open market operations alone and to see to it that solvent firms are never short of liquidity. Now, what's the theory behind the existing framework? In particular, what's the theory behind the primary dealer system? Well, it's premised on the assumption 
that primary dealers are the soundest of sound financial institutions. Come on, laugh. <laughs> and the idea is that by dealing with only these uh, uh, especially sound institutions, the Fed protects itself from any sort of counterparty or credit risk, and then they can take responsibility for acting as conduits to get funds they acquire from the Fed to other financial institutions that are in need of them. But of course, uh, the theory breaks down if primary dealers are themselves in trouble. It breaks down for two reasons, at least. One is that now the counterparty risk problem is a problem that causes other financial institutions to be leery of dealing with primary dealers. That's one part of the problem. The other part is that primary dealers can now engage in liquidity hoarding as a way to deal with their own balance sheet problems. So instead of being efficient monetary policy conduits, they become so many gigantic liquidity sponges. That is, in a nutshell, my paper goes into the details, what happened or a part of what happened after, uh, uh, the, during 2008. Now, the Fed's response to the breakdown of the primary dealer system was to turn from its mission of maintaining the liquidity of the solvent component of the financial market to instead devoting its efforts to rescuing the primary dealers, with the notable exception of Lehman Brothers. And it financed its rescues of these primary dealers, which were undertaken through various new facilities, including the primary dealer credit facility and the term, uh, term uh, securities lending facility, it financed these rescues by actually depriving the solvent financial market of liquidity. This is, of course, what was referred to previously as its policy of sterilized direct lending. The discount window, by the way, didn't help. Uh, the discount window didn't help because banks, rather than turn to it, uh, resisted doing so because there has been, since continental Illinois, a big stigma attached to discount window borrowing. The Fed thus had to respond uh, with another facility, the term auction facility, which was a kind of temporary bypass of the primary dealer system and also of treasuries only, uh, that uh, operated as sort of a hybrid between open market operations and direct lending because funds in predetermined amounts were auctioned off to the highest bidders, uh, to, to, to banks that bid for them. And this uh, bidding process uh, avoided the stigma that uh, direct discount window lending might have involved. So in short, you had all kinds of ad hoc emergency lending facilities that arose as a result of the breakdown of the Fed's operating system, and particularly of the primary dealer system. Uh, now, these, these responses, though, were far from satisfactory. First of all, they, they failed to prevent a severe freeze of liquidity in late 2008, and that's the event that, I believe, marked the transition from a mere financial crisis, mere is not exactly the right word for it, but from a financial crisis to a, a recession. The arrangements contributed to the propping up of insolvent firms through subsidized last resort loans. They reinforced the dogma that some financial firms are too big to fail. And finally, 
they set the stage for further, perhaps even more severe, excessive risk-taking by such too-big-to-fail enterprises. All right, so my Bajotian prescription for the 21st century. First, end the primary dealer system. That primary dealer system is, first of all, a farce. The primary dealers are not the soundest of the sound financial institutions. They are more like the most rotten of rotten financial institutions. Second, they are an anachronism. The system first arose because it was literally necessary for the Fed in New York to collect paper slips from firms making bids. That's why all the primary dealers had to be in New York. It is a horse and buggy arrangement. Under our modern, with our modern computer technology, it's perfectly possible for auctions to be held with hundreds, even thousands of separate institutions that could be located anywhere in the world or in the country. In fact, the, the ECB has 500 counterparties it routinely deals with for its open market operations, and it's legally able to deal with more than twice that many. Now, I'm, not, I'm the last one to say that the ECB is a particularly enlightened central bank. Politics are behind this, of course, the fact that there are many countries and they all should have a fair share and so on. Nevertheless, it's a more sensible and more modern arrangement. Second, treasuries only should be abandoned. This is treasuries only, the Fed's treasuries only policy is based on the rationale that, uh, that uh, treasuries are the only safe securities the Fed can deal in and that the Fed doesn't want to favor any particular private market enterprises by allowing their securities to be routinely purchased by it in open market operations. But we should go back to the original Federal Reserve to see how unnecessary this Treasuries-only policy is, in fact, and, and how, uh, how easy it is to show that it doesn't have a sound foundation. In the original Federal Reserve Act, the Fed was not supposed to be routinely buying Treasury securities at all. In fact, the fear then was that by having the Fed buy Treasury securities, you would invite, well, guess what, the monetization of debt. So the whole idea was, let's have a no treasuries policy so we don't have this kind of debt monetization. Now, for various reasons, that broke down under pressure from the treasury in part, and indeed the result was that the Fed played handmaiden to the treasury for much of its history. And one can argue whether the Treasury Accord of 1951 really put an end to that. The Vietnam War experience suggests otherwise. Recent experience, I think, suggests otherwise as well. So there is a problem with buying treasuries, too. It's not as if treasuries are a perfectly safe asset for the Fed to deal with, with no problems behind them. Now, uh, another argument for not having the Fed engage in purchases of non-treasury securities is that, of course, it would be favoring those institutions whose, institution, whose securities it agreed to purchase, private institutions, private issuers. This reminds me of the old anti-Jackson pet banks argument, right? We can't, we must have a Bank of the United States because otherwise, wherever the government puts its deposits, it'll be favoring those pet state banks. Well, if the government only put its money in a federal bank, then that's one giant big pet bank, isn't it? So the treasury here is 
the pet of the Fed as long as only its securities are allowed. Besides, the Fed could certainly come up with a list of securities that is objective in the sense that it's based on credit ratings or other things, you know, just good investment grade, whatever. This is what the ECB does because it also doesn't have a Treasury's only policy. Here's the thing. If you make these two changes, in principle, any financial institution with good collateral that doesn't have to be Treasury securities can always get in line and participate in an auction and get its share of liquidity directly from the Fed, not through a primary dealer conduit that might break down. And this is, I submit, the 21st century counterpart of Badgett's advice for the 19th century. It is a simple way to have a central bank operating system that can always see to it that liquidity goes where it's needed and can do so either in crisis or in non-crisis times without any ad hoc changes in the rules, without any emergency lending vehicles, and so on. Finally, I propose that once all these other steps are taken, that lending, the direct lending by the Fed be stopped once and for all. Everything is auctions. Everything goes to the highest bidder, and so on. The discount window can be closed once you get rid of P the primary dealer system and treasuries only. Now, finally, a last word about me and old Walter Badgett. Badgett saw his recommendations in Lombard Street in 1873 as substitutes for going to a natural system, a free banking system. I don't see these proposals I'm making today that way. I see them as stepping stones. I believe that once we can exclude direct lending from the Fed's mandate, once we reduce everything to open market operations based on unchanging rules, that is our first step towards an overall Federal Reserve Constitution that would abolish all kinds of monetary discretion, and I think eventually that would mean disbanding the FOMC and having an automatic Fed that is run by a computer or something like it, where we no longer have to worry about central bankers coming up with new clever ideas. Thank you very much. Uh, well, first let me start by saying that uh, I have no disclaimers, okay? <laughs> uh, I will note, though, that uh, the title uh, of, of this session, Federal or Fed Policy uh, and the Allocation of Credit, uh, has been changed. The, the er earlier version of it was Fed Policy and the Misallocation of Credit, which actually got me off on the right foot, I think, in the, writing the paper for uh, this session. Uh, the title of my talk is uh, Natural Rates of Interest and Sustainable Growth. And let me amend that too, Natural Rates of Interest and Genuinely Sustainable Growth. And as you'll see, I'll distinguish between that and the sort of sustainable growth that the Federal Reserve achieves regularly in each boom, okay? Uh, let me start, though, with some stock-taking and a little reflection about uh, macroeconomics and policy prescription. What passes as high theory today is, is something called stochastic dynamic general equilibrium analysis, uh, SDGE. I invite you to Google those 
letters and see how many hits you get. It's enormous. That's what macro is all about uh, in the higher echelons of academics today. That's high theory. Uh, it removes itself from policy discussion. It's just all too sterile for that. So workaday policy discussion takes the form of old-style stimulant packages, fiscal and monetary, of the sort that would embarrass Maynard Keynes himself. Uh, well, it turns out the market is a process. We hear that a lot from advocates of markets, and we can add so too is theorizing about it, uh, which raises the question, how far back do we have to go to start all over again? Uh, my suggestion is we need to go back to Ludwig von Mises' theory of money and credit, uh, which was written in 1912. The date itself has significance as being the immediate pre-dawn of the Federal Reserve System, and the title concepts, money and credit, align perfectly with uh, today's uh, panel. Now, the key issue for Mises of credit misallocation uh, refers to the allocation of resources within, within the macroeconomic aggregates that populate modern macroeconomic uh, developments. Uh, Allen has given us a good sense of the dual goals of the Federal Reserve and the trouble that the Fed can get in by uh, using first one and then another, I can deal briefly with this issue uh, to say that the idea of credit allocation, of allocation of resources within the aggregates, just gets totally overshadowed today by the obsessive attention to the two magnitudes, unemployment and inflation. So if interest rates are manipulated with an eye towards reducing unemployment or reducing inflation, then just by construction they cannot be at the same time consistent with the allocation of resources cons uh, that is, gives us genuinely sustainable growth. So the sustainability that the Fed actually does achieve strictly and perversely is what I call between crises sustainability, uh, which is to say that it manages to forestall corrections, extending the boom, uh, but of course making the eventual crisis uh, more severe than it otherwise uh, would have been. Uh, to avoid the crisis, that would be the more genuine concept of sustainability, to avoid the crisis to start with, the interest rate in its role of allocating resources within the macroeconomic magnitudes would have to be uh, high on the Federal Reserve's agenda. Now, I'm certainly not advocating here that we need to give the Federal Reserve three mandates instead of two. I'm just showing you that by totally ignoring uh, the rate of interest that would equate savings and investment, and align investment decisions to saving decisions uh, preempts any possibility of having genuinely sustainable growth. I wrote a paper a few years ago uh, that relates this to the Taylor Rule that I think is worth repeating in a very condensed form here, uh, where supposedly the Fed splits the difference in some proportion, usually binging 
in one direction or, or the other, as Alan suggested. But it, it splits the difference between fighting unemployment and fighting inflation. Uh, and I've described this as an ill-fated learning by doing strategy. And the reason it's ill-fated is because the doing uh, occurs about once every eight weeks when the policy committee meets to decide what to do with interest rates. That's the doing. The learning occurs only about once a decade when the economy is treated to still another crisis, okay? Uh, after which it starts out on another learning by doing uh, strategy. Uh, now, what's missing from the Taylor Rule, of course, is any notion of the natural rate of interest, what it should be in order to allocate resources in accordance with people's preferences. Let me remind you that uh, the natural rate of unemployment, a term that we're all familiar with, in fact, is hardwired into all macro theory and all policy discussions, was the basis, uh, or, or was set out by Friedman, uh, on the basis of the complementary dis uh, distinction of the natural rate of interest. In other words, he cribbed from Newt Vixell, the Swedish economist, the idea of a natural rate and said we could apply it to unemployment as well to, as apply it to uh, the rate of interest. Uh, the natural rate of unemployment was initially defined by Friedman as the rate that's ground out by the system of Walrausian equations. It was eventually and fairly soon softened up simply to mean the rate of unemployment that's consistent with the real forces in the economy as opposed to the monetary forces. Now, unfortunately, those two complementary natural rates of unemployment and of inflation uh, weren't uh, exactly kept together. In, instead, uh, all concern about the uh, natural rate of unemployment simply swamped any concern about the natural rate uh, of interest. Keeping both rent, uh, interests or both natural rates in play reveals a critical trade-off uh, that we ignore only at our peril. Let me uh, offer a simple setup, overly simple you might say, and it probably is. Suppose that inflation is not a pressing problem. Well, that's quite a supposition to start with, but let's suppose it just for the sake uh, of argument. But suppose that uh, unemployment is, we have the unemployment rate above the natural rate. Well, straightforwardly, the policy prescription is for monetary ease, for reducing the rate of interest, all right? But now let's make one more supposition, and that is that suppose the old interest rate was, if only willy-nilly or happened so, at its natural rate. Well, that means that to try to solve a labor market problem, you create a credit market problem. Uh, this is something that uh, the Federal Reserve seems not to give uh, much attention to. Uh, so the Fed, in lowering interest rates, drives a wedge between saving and investment. And more importantly, certainly in the Misesian point of view, it's not just that the aggregates are misaligned, it's that resources are allocated incorrectly within the aggregates. Uh, the term I like to use is 
differential interest rate sensitivities. Some prices of assets go up more than others. Allocations in some areas go up more than others. Uh, durable capital, including housing, uh, durable consumer goods, time-consuming production processes are all favored by a low interest rate that's lower than the natural rate of interest. That's what gives you the malinvestment uh, that Mises talked about. The malinvestment caused by the monetary policy uh, is typically categorized as structural unemployment uh, in today's macro discussion uh, as being something apart from monetary, uh, monetary policies. Not so. That kind of structural analysis is very much a part of uh, the upturn of the business cycle, and it's also a part of uh, allocation during a recovery. Um, now, I'll recognize that the, that the Fed sometimes does worry about rising asset prices, asset inflation, it's called, uh, a kind of inflation that doesn't show up in the consumer price index, which guides their choice between fighting unemployment and fighting inflation. Uh, and yet, the Fed abstains from trying to control asset prices, even though hinting that it might have to. It abstains from it, choosing to leave it to the market itself to determine what those asset prices should be. Well, good, good, we're happy about that. But my question <coughs> is, why don't these worries about asset prices being too high, transform themselves wholesale into worries about the interest rate being too low. That's a price, the interest rate, that they don't leave to the market to decide. It's an incongruity to say that, oh, they will control interest rates, lowering them to 1% or 0% if need be, but not control uh, asset prices. Of course, I think they should not control either. I'm not advocating more control, I'm advocating less. Now, what I want to do, and I'll make it short because I'm aware of the time uh, constraint, is distinguish between two recent booms, the dot-com boom and the, uh, and the housing boom, and show you uh, that typically, not always, but typically, Fed-driven booms ride piggyback on real booms. Uh, the dot-com is a good example where we have an increase in the demand for credit to take advantage of all of the innovations during the digital revolution. Uh, and that increase in the demand for credit would, guess what, cause interest rates to rise. Well, fine, interest rates should rise. They should rise to a brand new natural rate of interest that reflect actual underlying uh, economic realities. But, as is typical, the Federal Reserve doesn't let them rise, or at least doesn't let them rise as much as the market would cause them to rise. Uh, it's not that the Fed is stimulating, wouldn't think of itself as being, having stimulus packages, it would just think of itself as accommodating. But accommodating at what rate? At the old rate before the new profit opportunities? I don't think so. At some higher or lower rate? Well, what rate and how determined? The only persuasive answer is that it should be, is, it, is that the demand should be accommodated by the market, not by the Fed. 
If the Fed accommodates causing prices not to rise, causing interest rates not to rise as much as they otherwise would, then the interest rate is below the natural rate. You get the misallocation. You get the, uh, you get the Fed-driven boom riding piggyback uh, on the real boom. Now, the recovery from that wasn't so bad partly because there really was a real boom. And we could fall back on that real boom and, and the economy could get going again. I contrast that very briefly with uh, the housing boom because here you didn't have innovations and new profit opportunities in the same sense. You had a distortion of credit markets uh, attributable uh, to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and uh, Barney Frank. Okay. Uh, and because of that, you ended up with a Fed-driven driven boom riding piggyback on a misallocation of resources. And once that boom collapsed, then you had double trouble in trying to recover because at the same time the economy was recovering from a housing bust, it also had to recover from uh, a Fed-driven boom. Let me then uh, uh, conclude very uh, briefly Uh, and say that some have suggested that the solution is obvious, that the Fed ought to target the natural rate, give them just one, one mandate, target the natural rate. But of course, that's much too facile. It's a misunderstanding of what the natural rate is. The natural rate of interest is a rate that we would emerge on the market without there being a centrally controlled money supply and credit market. And once the market discovers that, it doesn't need a central authority uh, to approve. Okay, so that's the case essentially for going to a decentralized banking system. Mercifully, I don't have to tell you just how to get there because our panel after lunch will tell you all about that. Thank you. <laughs>